0: This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson, bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The most monumental social engineering and ideological transshipment effort in history, part one, by the American TFP. If the Guinness Book of Records were to track the most senseless attitude possible, the award would probably go to someone who committed suicide for fear of dying. With the coronavirus epidemic, that is what the world is doing. It is playing out on the social scale, the very same chain reaction the SARS-CoV-2 virus triggers in its victims. An overreaction by the body's immune system leads to blockage in the lungs and death by asphyxiation. We can exemplify with Italy, the first Western nation attacked by the virus originating in China. The World Health Organization, WHO, initially minimized the virus's outbreak in Wuhan and congratulated the Chinese communist regime on its work to contain the epidemic. On February 17th, however, through the Italian-American scientist Ira Longini, an important consultant, the WHO reversed itself. Based on statistical data provided by the Chinese leadership— it is estimated that the virus would infect 66% of the planet's 7.7 billion inhabitants, causing the death of 45 to 50 million people. Transferring those projections to Italy, journalist Alberto Rossi calculated that if the country had not been more agile than others in isolating involuntary virus spreaders, the number of infected Italians would be in the 36 to 40 million range. He estimated the death toll would reach 400 to 450,000, equivalent to Italy's deaths during the Second World War, 330,000 soldiers and 130,000 civilians. Other journalists made even more apocalyptic calculations, quote Suppose that in the end only 30% are infected, close to 20 million, imagined Francesco Sisi in the daily Il Suicidario of March 9th, quote, if, giving a discount. Ten percent of them go into respiratory crisis. That means that without intensive care therapy, they are bound to succumb. There would be two million direct deaths, plus all indirect ones resulting from a collapse of the health system. A week later, Imperial College London released a team study led by Professor Neil Ferguson. It became the pretext for many governments to impose extreme stay-at-home measures. The model predicted that in the absence of such shelter-in-place orders, there would be approximately 510,000 deaths in the United Kingdom and 2.2 million in the United States, as it was a virus, quote, with comparable lethality to H1N1 influenza in 1918, the Spanish flu, unquote. This was shocking information, but presumably exaggerated, one would think— a 2005 reconstruction of Spanish flu victims carried out at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, as well as subsequent studies showed that the Spanish flu was a hundred times more lethal than other forms of influenza seen in the 20th century. Although initial information coming from Wuhan did not collaborate this claim about the virus's extreme lethality, the Imperial College's projections were taken almost as a quote-unquote dogma of faith— they led the British government to change its policy. The latter did not lift stay-at-home measures, even when Professor Ferguson acknowledged in a tweet, quote, I'm conscious that lots of people would like to see and run the pandemic simulation code we are using to model control measures against COVID-19. To explain the background, I wrote the code, thousands of lines of undocumented C, 13-plus years ago to model flu pandemics, unquote. The revelation provoked hundreds of Twitter responses, pointing to the extreme vulnerability of this programming language, further weakened by its large number of undocumented lines, which makes independent verification almost impossible. Ten days later, a University of Oxford team came up with an alternative model, assuming that a much larger number of inhabitants of the British Isles would already be contaminated, so the lethality rate would be far lower. Time will tell which model will prove to be more accurate. In any case, an April 9th study issued by the Institute of Virology at the University of Bonn presented a factual confirmation of the Oxford model. It denied the lethality rate that WHO and the Imperial College attributed to SARS-CoV-2. The study consisted of several in-depth tests carried out on people from the village of Gangelt in the district of Heinsberg, the epidemic's first focus in Germany. The Daily Le Monde summarizes its results as follows, A German study estimates a lower mortality rate. Surveys of 12,446 Gangelt residents show figures five times less than the original assessment. The researchers argued that this method identifies all infected people, including asymptomatic carriers, unquote. The study found that the population had a 15% infection rate, and the mortality rate was only 0.37%, which is five times lower than that assigned to Germany by Johns Hopkins University. In any case, it does not seem sensible for governments to take drastic measures with enormous social and economic costs based on mathematical models built on uncertain data. To prove it, let's look again at Italy. On the day these lines are written, April twentieth, two 2020, the Civil Protection Bulletin announced that, for the first time since the beginning of the crisis, both the number of people testing positive in the country and those in intensive care units in need of respiratory help had decreased. One can assume that the peak of the epidemic is behind us, except that the virus can mutate and cause a new epidemic wave, as happened with the H1N1 swine flu virus between 2009 and 2011. To date, Italy's official death toll from COVID-19 is 23,660. Suppose that the virus does not mutate, and the number will double by the end of the year. The total number of deaths would amount to 47,000. That would be almost 10 times fewer deaths than the least alarmist projection made at the beginning of the epidemic, and 50 times less than the most alarmist projection made a mere month ago. 40,000 deaths is a very high death toll. It would be a tragedy for the victims and their families, and a severe blow to Italy. Nor would that tragedy be lessened by the fact that the average age for the deceased is 81 years old, mostly males, with pre-existing pathologies in two-thirds of the cases, according to data provided by Italy's Istituto Superiore di Sanità. Now, let's look at the medal's flip side. The economic consequences resulting from the drastic horizontal stay-at-home measures adopted in a short period by Italy's national and regional authorities to contain the epidemic and the overwhelming of hospitals' ICUs. According to the Italian Institute of Statistics, 2.2 million companies suspended their activities, 49% of the total economy. That led to a 34% production drop and a 27% added value drop. A total of 7.4 million employees were unable to work, 44.3% of the entire workforce, of whom 4.9 million were simple wage earners, 42%. This sudden halt in economic activity will lead to, quote, a tragedy of biblical proportions, unquote, predicts Mario Draghi, former president of the European Central Bank, in a column in the Financial Times. It is the biggest crisis in the real economy in the last hundred years. According to investment bank Goldman Sachs, Italian GDP will fall 11.6% in 2020. For Gustavo Boni, a European official, the contraction of the Italian GDP will be between 125 and 15%, with an 85% drop in gross fixed capital stock and a 38% drop in domestic employment income. In turn, the public debt will amount to 160% of GDP. That was Greece's level when it was bailed out by the EU. Add it up. This means that once stay-at-home orders are lifted, millions of Italian workers risked finding their company's doors locked, and thousands of artisans and retailers could join the large numbers of the unemployed or file for bankruptcy. In the tourism sector alone, 13% of the Italian GDP, the economic newspaper Il Sole 24 Ore, calculates that, quote, almost one million jobs are at risk, unquote. Maurizio Gardini, president of Kampf Cooperative, one of the main associates of Italian cooperatives, says that when Italy lifts the shutdown, at least 20 percent, close to one million of medium and small companies, will be dead in the water. The consequence in terms of lost income, unemployment, and social unrest are indescribable. A study by the Italian Statistics Agency holds that the lockdown of productive activities will generate, quote, the collapse of consumer and business confidence, unquote. Italy is not an isolated case. Authorities in neighboring France have taken similar shutdown measures based on equally alarmist projections of contagion and deaths. The consequences are similar as well. According to the French Statistics Institute, economic activity fell 36 percent, while in the private sector the drop was even greater, 42 percent. In fact, 6.9 million private sector employees are at home, receiving partial unemployment assistance, and household consumption dropped by 35 percent. The economist and historian Nicolas Bavarez said in his weekly column in the Daily La Figaro that, quote, Two months of confinement will leave France with a 10% drop in its GDP, a deficit of 12 to 15%, and a public debt of more than 120% of GDP. Thousands of companies will go bankrupt, notably the smallest ones, and many of the 8.7 million partially unemployed will never get their jobs back, resulting in the growth of poverty, unquote. In fact, the Minister of Labor announced that 9.6 million private sector employees are currently protected by partial unemployment benefits. That is almost half the entire labor force. According to Bruno Le Maire, French economic minister, in 2020, the country will experience its biggest recession since World War II. Prime Minister Edouard Philippe declared in the National Assembly that the economic impact linked to the coronavirus will be massive and brutal, giving rise to, quote, an economic shock that everyone imagines but whose total impact no one yet knows, unquote. If these are the forecasts for the two countries whose economies are among the world's most developed, one can only imagine what will be the impact from the SARS-CoV-2 blocking of economic activities for the rest of the world. On April 9th, Kristalina Georgieva, managing director of the International Monetary Fund, declared that we would see, quote unquote, the worst economic consequences since the Great Depression, causing a drop in income per inhabitant in over 179 countries. The senior official added that poor and emerging countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, quote unquote, are at high risk. All the more so as capital is migrating out of them at a rate three times faster than the 2008 financial crisis, which will trigger liquidity and solvency problems. Just eight days later, the IMF released its forecast regarding what it called the Great Shutdown. A contraction of 3% of the world's GDP in 2020, with Europe and the United States being the most affected by the Depression, losses of 7.5% and 6.5% respectively, it does not rule out the possibility that there will be an even more brutal drop in 2021. The social effect of the recession will be severe, with unemployment in the Eurozone increasing by 40 percent, reaching 9.2 percent, and tripling in the USA to reach 10.4 percent of the total workforce. Quote, workers and businesses are facing catastrophe, stated Guy Ryder, director general of the International Labor Organization. The ILO did indeed release an April 7th report, stating that, quote, The crisis is causing an unprecedented reduction in economic activity and working time. As of 1st April 2020, estimates indicate that working hours will decline in the current quarter by around 6.7%, which is equivalent to 195 million full-time workers, unquote. Huge losses are expected at all income levels, but especially in high-to-medium-income countries—7% loss, equivalent to 100 million full-time workers, which is much greater than the effects of the 2008 financial crisis. The sectors most affected will be hotels, restaurants, manufacturing, retailing, administrative activities, and services. The ILO report states that there is a high risk, that the final figure will be much higher than the initial projection of 25 million unemployed. The figure of 25 million certainly was extremely optimistic, since a study by the African Union suggested that Africa alone would see the suppression of 20 million jobs and indebtedness would escalate. As far as the United States is concerned, it went from almost full employment in February to mass unemployment expected to reach 20 percent in April. In less than a month, 22 million jobs have disappeared, says the Figaro's Washington correspondent. The global result will be an exponential increase in extreme poverty. Quote— I see no historical equivalent to the threat that COVID-19 poses to the most vulnerable populations, said Robin Guittard, Oxfam campaign manager in France. In a study released on April 8th, researchers at King's College London and the National University of Australia predicted that the pandemic could bring extreme poverty to half a billion of the planet's inhabitants, destroying the progress made in the last three decades. The consequences of this exponential increase in poverty on the health of impoverished populations will be disastrous. Even the World Health Organization, the biggest promoter of strict stay-at-home measures, recognizes that there is a close link between extreme poverty and poor health. In a study published in conjunction with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, it recognizes the obvious, namely that, quote, the poor suffer worse health and die younger. They have higher than the average child and maternal mortality, higher levels of disease, and more limited access to health care and social protection, unquote. Consequently, More than 3.42 million people died of hunger in the first months of 2020, a daily average of 30,800 deaths. That is almost five times more than the global number of deaths by COVID-19 on April 5th, the day registering the highest number of fatalities in the world so far, 6,367 victims. The World Food Program predicts that the loss of tourism revenues, the decrease in remittances and travel, and other restrictions related to the coronavirus pandemic will double the number of poor people suffering from acute hunger, adding 130 million to the approximately 135 million already existing in this category, quote. COVID 19 is potentially catastrophic for millions who are already hanging by a thread, said Arif Hussein, chief economist and director of research, assessment, and monitoring at the World Food Program, WFP. David Beasley, WFP executive director, exclaimed in an interview with The Guardian, Now, my goodness, this is a perfect storm. We are looking at widespread famines of biblical proportions. Statistically, this increase in acute hunger resulting from the economic collapse caused by confinement measures could be responsible for 30,000 additional daily deaths. A sizable share of those deaths would probably have been avoided if instead of listening to WHO ayatollahs and media icons, the authorities had listened to the opinions of other experts who suggested vertical isolation or smart virus control measures. In so doing, they would protect the population at risk, the elderly and people with serious underlying diseases, and quarantining those affected by the virus after carrying out thousands of tests. This is not an unrealistic alternative. This plan was highly successful in Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, Canada, Georgia, and Iceland. In the first three Asian countries mentioned and in Japan, work stoppages affected only 10% of the active population. The effectiveness of this strategy so far has been largely demonstrated. The total number of deaths in these four countries, with a combined population of 257.4 million people, today amounts to only 489, which corresponds to a mortality rate of 1.9 victims per million. In contrast, in Italy, despite the horizontal isolation strategy followed, where the entire population was ordered to stay at home, the figure was 391.32 victims per million, with 23,660 deceased. That is 205 times more. A March 19th editorial in the Wall Street Journal puts it well, three days after the release of the Imperial College's fantasy projections and even before the Oxford University report. It was titled, Rethinking the Coronavirus Shutdown. No society can safeguard public health for long at the cost of its economic health. It is a pity that neither this editorial nor the above figures were shown to government officials who, driven by good intentions of saving lives and advised by WHO directors and Imperial College researchers, decided to halt, quote-unquote, non-essential economic operations in their countries. The impact of this paralysis will be all the more acute as, quote— Isolation, even if intermittent, should go on until 2022 in several parts of the world if a vaccine does not appear, unquote, according to the magazine Istoe referencing, quote, a study by Harvard University published in the journal Science, unquote. In this hasty decision to order everyone to stay at home, there is yet another shocking revelation. On March 26th, the World Health Organization published a document titled, Guiding Principles for Immunization Activities During the COVID-19 Pandemic. It states that, quote, the recommended prevention measures of physical distancing, it is advised to temporarily suspend the conduct of mass vaccination campaigns due to the increased risk of promoting community circulation, unquote. Following this recommendation, the Global Polio Eradication Initiative has suspended its vaccination campaign. However, its scientific advisors estimate that this will increase the number of paralysis in children and that some countries, free from this infectious disease, will become infected again. According to the Madrid Daily El Pais, polio is just one of many vaccinations that have been suspended in Africa. Quote, Writing in Science, journalist Leslie Roberts documents that millions of children have been deprived of their polio, measles, papilloma, yellow fever, cholera, and meningitis vaccines. There is talk of 14 million, but it is a low estimate, certainly very low, unquote. According to Atlanta's Centers for Disease Control... Twenty-three countries have already stopped their measles campaigns, and another 16 are considering doing so even if it kills 3 to 6 percent of those infected, multiples more than COVID-19, and that the majority of its victims are malnourished children. Facing what the Spanish newspaper calls the quote-unquote devil's dilemma, authorities in most rich countries have chosen, like it or not, to spare potential COVID-19 victims, perhaps because they are a majority of voters, and to sacrifice children in poor countries. These will die or become disabled because of WHO's irresponsible guidance. Given these data... Would the reader not agree with us that the contemporary world is committing suicide for fear of dying from COVID-19? That is what is happening, thanks to the irresponsibility of WHO, political leaders, and media, which created the ongoing hysteria. That is so obvious that a question naturally surfaces. Who benefits from this collective suicide in our contemporary society? From a geopolitical point of view, the major beneficiary of the crisis generated by the epidemic that started in Wuhan was Chinese communist regime itself. But within Western societies, three ideological currents, all of which, by the way, have shown themselves to be great champions of extreme stay-at-home measures, will be its main beneficiaries—radical ecologists, world governance advocates, and the radical left. One. One the Communist Party of China. Despite the huge responsibility of China's communist rulers for the still unclarified origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and its spread in Wuhan and the entire Hubei province, its greatest beneficiary, both internally and externally, is undoubtedly the communist regime in Beijing. John Gray, Professor Emeritus at the London School of Economics, summarizes it in an article for the New Statesman. No one knows the full costs of the Chinese shutdown. Even so, Xi Jinping's regime looks to have benefited from the pandemic. The virus has provided a rationale for expanding the surveillance state and introducing even stronger political control. Instead of wasting the crisis, Xi is using it to expand the country's influence. China is inserting itself in place of the EU by assisting distressed national governments, such as Italy. Many of the mass and testing kits it has provided have proven to be faulty, but the fact fr- seems not to have dented Beijing's propaganda campaign. The Serbian president, Aleksandar Vucic, has been blunter and more realistic. Quote, European solidarity does not exist. That was a fairy tale. The only country that can help us in this hard situation is the People's Republic of China. To the rest of them, thanks for nothing. Unquote. Bolivarian left-wing currents support this diplomatic and ideological expansion of Chinese influence. For example, Brazilian activist Paula Estrada, a member of the Secretariat of the International People's Assembly and also of the Brazilian chapter of ALBA movements, Continental Coordination of Social Movements Toward the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of Our America, she attests, quote, It is becoming increasingly obvious that during the pandemic, China has taken on a much more prominent role than before in the economic and commercial spheres, as well as in the political and ideological aspects. It is still difficult to project scenarios for the outcome of this process. However, it is undeniable that the Chinese government has been applauded worldwide for its capacity, effectiveness, and speed facing the advance of the epidemic in China. They did so by enforcing measures of social isolation, building hospitals, manufacturing tests and hospital supplies, qualifying professionals, and investing in science and technology. In times of pandemic, when we have to deal with so many changes, uncertainties, sadness and attacks by the right, and imperialism, the example of the Venezuelan people, the Cuban people, and the Chinese people fill our hearts with the hope that another world is possible, unquote. Two Ecologists Soon after governments implemented stay-at-home measures, ecologists shouted loud and clear that it had been proven that in the face of a global threat, it was impossible to impose drastic measures affecting the daily life of whole populations. They suggested that once the health crisis is over, it would be illogical not to declare a climate emergency and impose equally drastic measures to decrease CO2 production. In Spain, five associations... Amigos de la Tierra, Greenpeace, Ecologistas en Acción, SEO BirdLife, and WWF addressed the European Commission and the Spanish government. They requested that the relief and stimulus packages meant to reactivate the economy be used to, quote, speed up the transition to a carbon-free and green economy, unquote, The distribution of funds should penalize those most unsustainable activities and be conditional on a commitment to stop the loss of biodiversity and favor decarbonization. Furthermore, the European Alliance for a Green Recovery was born at the initiative of member of European Parliament Pascal Confin. It includes 180 European leaders, 79 MEPs from 17 countries, 37 top managers of multinational corporations, 26 business associations, and 7 NGOs, in addition to groups of experts. Its purpose is to promote a green solution to the coronavirus economic crisis and, quote, unleash a new European economic model, unquote. Since, for the Alliance, the core element of economic strategy must be the fight against climate change, the massive investments to be made to save the economy must align with ecological principles. The Alliance supports a letter that 13 European Union environment and climate ministers sent to Brussels demanding that the Green Pact proposed by the newly empowered von der Leyen Commission be retained. 3. Globalists. As soon as European countries began to close their borders and take protective measures, open society advocates started to proclaim that the only solution for the pandemic would be a coordinated global response. Meanwhile, the nations bickered among themselves over the defective masks and test kits that China had quote-unquote generously sent. Bill Gates published in several newspapers a column titled A Global Strategy Against COVID-19, saying that although governments have provided national responses, their leaders must recognize that as long as the virus is present somewhere, quote, it will be a problem for the entire world, unquote. He added that, quote, we need a global response to fighting the disease, unquote, so that financial and medical resources, face masks, test kits, etc., are distributed effectively and countries commit to following WHO guidelines. For his part, Antonio Gutierrez, former president of the Socialist International and current U.N. Secretary General, presented a special report titled Shared Responsibility, Global Solidarity, Responding to the Socioeconomic Impacts of COVID-19. In it, he asked that at least 10 percent of the world's GDP be allocated to a solidarity fund to resolve the crisis. Gordon Brown, a former British Labor Prime Minister, gave the last touch to the package by suggesting no less than some provisional form of global government to face the twin medical and economic crises. Quote, what we need is a working executive. Unquote. He is now acting as a UN special envoy for global education. And in an interview with El Pais, he reiterated, quote, We need a summit with commitments to provide the health emergency with the necessary funds. And secondly, an executive task force, a team with executive powers, at the G20, because good words are no longer enough. We need to take action in the coming days and do so in a coordinated manner. An executive body is needed to respond to the problem that you, the journalist, mentioned on criticism of international institutions. Shared political leadership is needed, unquote. According to Brown, in the current phase of efforts to preserve jobs, a national response may suffice. Still in the next phase, quote, we will need fiscal coordination, monetary coordination, and collaboration between the different central banks. And I am not just talking about a model like the EU. I refer to the global scope. In the growth phase, we will need a coordinated effort of fiscal stimulus around the world. Unquote. In Latin America... The so-called Puebla group, made up of presidents, former presidents, for example, Lula da Silva, Dilma Rousseff, etc., and socialist-oriented political, academic, and union leaders, published a statement. The signatories asserted that the current crisis, quote, has no other solution than integrating Latin America and the Caribbean and cooperating at the global level, unquote. In this operation, the statement continued, the WHO, quote, must play an even more important role than today. The document invited, quote, governments... Organizations and peoples of the world, when the pandemic ends, to make a serene reflection on the new development model that prioritizes previously unknown values such as the environment, social inclusion, reducing inequality, food security, military disarmament, multilateralism, and physical progressivity. Four the radical left in turn the radical left is lying in wait to surf the wave in an article published in intercept writer and activist naomi klein explained that in the last two decades she learned that quote during moments of cataclysmic change the previously unthinkable suddenly becomes a reality unquote Along the same line, the Slovenian philosopher Slava Žižek maintained that, quote, the coronavirus will force us to reinvent communism based on our trust in people and science, unquote. It would not be like the communism of the past. Rather, it would be, quote, some kind of global organization that can control and regulate the economy as well as limit the sovereignty of nation states, unquote. The Italian philosopher Franco Berardi Bifo would not be outdone, quote, is there anyone who does not like this logic because it recalls communism, well, if there are no more modern words, we will still use this one, old indeed, but always very beautiful. Unquote. The radical left is acting coherently. It is openly proposing the nationalization of electric and telecommunications companies, private hospitals, hotels, etc. Pablo Iglesias, leader of the Podemos Party and vice president of the current Spanish coalition government, stated it eloquently during a meeting of his crisis cabinet. Even more troubling is the fact that representatives of the establishment are taking up proposals made until now by the radical left, such as universal basic income. Note that the proposed monthly check from the government is not limited to temporary aid to unemployed workers due to an economic or financial crisis. Sensible people, ranging from an analyst of the Acton Institute to the secretary of the Spanish Bishop's Conference, consider that necessary. Nor does universal basic income correspond to Milton Friedman's helicopter money metaphor aimed at solving an economy's temporary liquidity problems. In reality, it is a permanent minimum wage distributed to the entire population, each person being able to choose whether or not he wants to work. The measure was supposedly guaranteed the individual's total, quote unquote, emancipation. A universal basic income was the central plank in the platform of Benoit Hamon, the French Socialist Party's unsuccessful candidate for the presidency in the very recent elections. He took advantage of the epidemic to relaunch the proposal, claiming that, quote, The universal wage for existence is an incomparable tool for emancipation. Freeing everyone from exclusive dependence on salary earned at work, the universal wage gives each individual the ability to negotiate and choose. Social emancipation goes through this individual practice of freedom. The crisis will give birth to a new world, unquote. In an open letter published in the London newspaper The Independent, no fewer than 500 academics and political leaders, mainly from the United Kingdom and the United States, called for the implementation of this universal basic income. They stated that, quote, Without drastic government intervention, countless numbers will suffer, businesses will close, unemployment will skyrocket, and the economy will go into a steep recession and possibly even a second Great Depression. Therefore, an unconditional basic income should play a central role in the emergency response to this crisis." However, as far as we are concerned, this cure— is worse than the disease. Beppe Grillo, the former comedian and founder of Italy's Five Star Movement, signed on to this open letter. In addressing the issue of universal basic income, he declared, quote, The emergency we are experiencing could favor a historic revolutionary change that many always superficially considered as crazy, but could change our world for the better. Unquote. Some firebrands want to precipitate this revolutionary change in a violent way. For example, Congressman Guillaume Larrave, from the center-right party Les Républicains of former President Sarkozy, wrote a column in the newspaper La Pognon. He speculated that in France, quote, "...the brutality of the economic and financial outbreak would fuel a social revolt based on a fertile ground of concerns and demands already very much alive, as shown by the Yellow Vest protesters and the challenge to retirement reform in the last two years." That would reopen the wounds of class and generational struggle, as well as territorial disputes in the French archipelago, kindling fiery riots, unquote. The French parliamentarian continues, I write without exaggeration. France would then be on the way to a civil war. A report by the Central Territorial Intelligence Service, the French equivalent of the FBI, confirmed the French Congressman's pessimistic prediction. It warned of the risk of social upheaval at the end of the lockdown. Quote, Confinement prevents manifestations of popular discontent, but the anger does not diminish and the highly criticized crisis management fuels the protests, says the report. Intelligence officers fear the creation of quote-unquote fight committees in urban peripheries and action by sectors of the extreme left to foster a quote transversality of the struggles spreading them across the population, unquote. Indeed, disturbances have already started, quote— A non-exhaustive list of episodes of urban violence recorded between April 12th and April 19th, informs La Figaro. Ambushes are methodically prepared, with the storage of projectiles, mortars, and barricades to make the buzz on social media." They observe the reactivity of the police and they mobilize personnel. The objective is clear, quote, to assert that it is their territory and that they control it. A veteran police officer from a sensitive sector explains to the newspaper, the police have only one certainty. At the slightest incident, immediately denounced as police abuse, riots erupt with multiple calls for reprisals on social networks. The Parisian newspaper adds... The situation could evolve rapidly from some early protests with controllable violence such as last year's yellow vest protests to massive and uncontrollable ones such as those in Santiago, Valparaiso, and other Chilean cities. These force the governments to yield to leftist pressure and to start a process that could result in the adoption of a Bolivarian-style constitution by a country that until recently boasted the highest per capita income in Latin America. If this scenario worsens, the disturbances will serve as an argument to accelerate programs to socialize the economy through legal means. In any case, the three ideological currents mentioned above, ecologism, globalism, and the radical left, are unanimous in affirming categorically, quote, "...nothing will ever be the same again," unquote. From where do the representatives of ideological currents with hitherto fringe importance at the ballot box derive so much self-assurance? Perhaps it stems from hopes that they will overcome their ongoing differences. Above all, though, they know they can rely on two factors that completely open up for them an unexpected window of opportunity—the population's fear of the worsening or eventual second wave of the pandemic—and the moral support that Pope Francis has been giving to their agenda. This is the end of Part 1 of the most monumental social engineering and ideological transshipment effort in history by the American TFP. Thank you so much for listening. In print, the article is extensively footnoted. To read this or to find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.